0: This podcast may contain content that is graphic and disturbing in nature. Listener discretion is advised.
1: How very much I've loved you. How very much I've tried my best to give you the good life. It was said by the greatest of prophets from time immemorial, no man takes my life from me, I lay my life down. If we can't live in peace, then let's die in peace. We've been so betrayed. We have been so terribly betrayed.
2: Before starting this episode, I need to provide a warning that it contains extremely disturbing content relating to mass suicide and murder. In the last episode, we saw that Congressman Leo Ryan arrived at Jonestown to conduct an investigation on behalf of the US government. Serious allegations had been made against Jones and the People's Temple. However, what he found was a group of people who appeared to be very happy at Jonestown. Throughout the rest of the night, the reporter spoke to various Temple members, including one girl whose brother had come with the congressman. Her brother believed that she was unhappy and wanted to leave. There is video footage of this girl being interviewed, but she says just the opposite, that she is happy and wants to stay. Here is part of that interview.
1: Yes, I'm very
3: happy
1: here. You know that your father and your brother are convinced that you're not.
3: Well, I'm very happy here. I don't know what else I can do to convince him. I've talked to my brother several hours now. In fact, I invited him down here about a month and a half ago to spend a week or two or however long he wanted with me to share with him what I'm doing here and the happiness that I feel. And as far as my father's concerned, you know, so far he has said what he wants to say, which has not been the truth.
1: I, I, it must be obvious to you that your brother cares a great deal for you. And I suspect that you have feelings for him. This is a very sad thing. Why does it exist? What's, what can be done to solve this thing where a brother and sister... There's absolutely
3: happy? no problem between my brother and myself. He's happy, you know, I'm very happy for him to come down here anytime. He's asking me to come back to the United States to spend a week to convince him and my family that I'm not being held here against my will. And I don't plan to return at this time to convince anybody because I know I'm happy here and I know my... I'm not saying I'm never coming back to the United States, but this is my home here, this is my life for now, and
2: this is where I came to remain. So was this really the case, or was she afraid to defy Jones? Ryan spent the Friday night in the compound, at the invitation of Jones. On Saturday the 18th of November, the very next day, he made preparations to leave assembling those Temple members who had expressed their desire to leave with him and return to the US. While this was happening, the NBC News reporter Don Harris was talking with Jones and he gave him the note that Vernon had written about wanting to leave Jonestown. Now Jones already knew that Vernon wanted to leave and had forced him to sign the document to terminate his parental rights to his son. He was conflicted about what to do. But ultimately signed the document. And here is how Jones responded to the note.
1: I'm going back over this because as I say, I can concede to you the amount of work that's been done here, because that's that's not an arguable point. So that means only one thing to be explored. And that's this question of a lot to be explored. Well, for us, the, the thing of fear. And this is a good example. Last night someone came and passed me this note. That's who we're talking about. He wants to leave his son here. If Jones sounds like that, that's why he's going to leave his son here. He's the one that I'm just talking about. This, This is the man that wants to leave his son here does it concern you, though, that, that this man, for whatever reason, what are the people in your group... People play games, friend. They lie, they lie. What can I do about lies? Are you people going to leave us? I just beg you, please leave us. Bill, we will bother nobody. Anybody wants to get out of here can get out of here. We have no problem about getting out of here. They come and go all the time. I don't know what kind of game. People like, who, who, people like publicity. Some people do. I don't. Some of your ad publicity. If the so bad, why is he leaving his son here? Can you give me a good reason for that? Oh, I take my son. I take my son with me.
2: So Jones says it's all lies. That if Jonestown is so bad, then why is the man leaving his son behind? Meanwhile, back at the Georgetown House, Sherwin finally got the opportunity to be reunited with his daughter Leanne. Sharon prepared a meal and they all sat down, eating and talking. Leanne's younger brother and sister were there as well, and they were aged under ten. Sherwin was pleased with how it went. His daughter seemed to be pleased to see him, but little did he know that the cordial get-together was about to be cut short, and that it would be the last time that he would ever see his daughter again. Back at the compound, the congressman was in discussion with those who wanted to leave. However, Jones had been made aware of the defectors. In the video taken by Ryan's party, you can see various people talking to Ryan and it soon became apparent that even more people came forward expressing a desire to leave with him. Jones's minders reported back to him and Jones then set about speaking to each of the defectors and trying to convince them to stay. The group then began boarding a truck, which was to transport them back to the airstrip. Vernon can be seen in the footage dragging his heavy suitcase to the truck.
1: I met with my son briefly, and... See you soon, okay? Well, he wasn't of an age where I could tell him what was happening. I just, I hugged him. I said goodbye to him. And that was the last time that I saw him. I, um, I don't know what else to say about that moment.
2: Those who boarded the truck were taunted by other temple members who called them traitors. They also said they hoped their plane was shot down. Vernon then hugged his son for the last time, still conflicted about whether he had made the right decision. As the truck was about to leave, Joan said goodbye to everyone and added that they would be welcomed back at any time. And just at the last minute, another man came forward and became the last person to board. This man was to play a pivotal role later in the story. But Ryan had to change his plans and stay behind to process the rest of the people who now also wanted to leave. So the plan was to transport the first group to the airstrip and then return for Ryan and any other defectors. Ryan continued discussions with others who wanted to leave and also spoke with Jones himself. It's not known exactly what was said in this conversation, but while they were talking, a man suddenly came up behind Ryan and put a knife to his throat. There was a struggle as Ryan wrestled with the man and others came to his assistance and managed to subdue the man. In the scuffle, the man was cut with the knife, but Ryan himself was unhurt. However, some of the man's blood came to be on Ryan's white shirt. He realised this was now time to leave and made a swift retreat to the waiting truck. There is video footage showing himself and his aide, Jackie Spears, walking towards the truck and the camera clearly picks up the blood on his shirt. Those on the truck didn't know what had happened and thought the congressman had been hurt. However, he informed them about what had happened and that he was okay. The truck then transported the rest of the party to the airstrip. When there, Ryan recorded an interview with reporter Don Harris of NBC about the knife attack. And here is that interview.
0: What happened? Well, we were, uh, all of a sudden we had uh, uh, a whole lot of people at the last minute who wanted to go suddenly rushed forward and said, we want to leave. We, we knew about uh, two as early as last night. Uh, we knew about a, th- a family this morning uh, that said, uh, we got to go. Uh, and there was, you have to understand there was a high degree of agitation on the part of those who want to go, and they were really very much in fear. And. Uh, so we made arrangements for them, and of course the transportation is extremely limited uh, and very difficult, so we had to begin planning. Uh, and of course most of these people, if they come out, will not have enough food and they don't have enough clothing a place to stay and the rest. So we had to begin a real operation, at which point we divide up the work, and my responsibility, for, among the three of us, my assistant and the Deputy Chief of Mission, uh, Snyder and I, my job is to stay. Behind and get the list of people who wanted to go. Make sure they had their stuff. Make sure they made their declarations. They wanted to leave and, all, and just keep it straight. And I was doing that, which included going with some of them to get their belongings because they were they didn't they were reluctant to go back to their uh, buildings alone. And uh, I think in the process, uh, there people could see me doing that and were pretty hostile uh, about it. Apparently, from the looks they gave and some of the comments they made, not to me, but to the people who were leaving. And uh, the next thing I did, back in the pavilion, we had the group beginning to get together. I stood up and was uh, had been talking with uh, the two attorneys for the temple. Uh, and uh, suddenly, the knife was around my neck. And uh, I, I was in danger. And I pushed the hand away, uh, fell back against him. Others grabbed him and uh, uh, pulled him off me. And I that's where we are. Who grabbed him? Well, everybody did. The, I think the man closest, because uh, he'd just been talking, it was Mark Lane. Uh, and uh, Mark, uh, I, I, was, I didn't know at the time, but there was a hand there grabbing with the knife along with mine and I was very grateful. And uh, we began to ride him down. Others jumped on. There was a great deal of screaming and carrying on, and so on. And just, everybody just jumped on and began riding him down. I, leaned, I sagged and went this way and began And him backward. And, uh, but it, and, and kept doing that until somebody actually got the knife out of his hand. I uh, jumped up and, and, and came away, and he was on the floor, and were still struggling. And there must have been six or seven people sitting on him, and on arms and legs and everything else. Did he say anything when he came up? Yeah, he said uh, something about uh, rob and choke and kill, and uh, or knife. I don't, I don't know. But the obvi- what he said was he intended to kill, him because he's going to or something about uh, this is what you you're going to get, or something. I don't know. I, I don't recall
2: the airstrip, preparations were being made to leave. Ryan had chartered an extra plane due to the large numbers of people who came forward wanting to return to the US. One plane was a small six seater Cessna, and the other was a larger 24 seater Guiana Airways plane. Due to the tense nature of the situation following the attack on Ryan, Everyone boarding the planes were first checked for weapons. They were finally ready to leave, but then Ryan noticed a man approach one of the planes to board, but there was no one there to check him. So Ryan went over to the plane himself and checked the man over, and then he became the last person to board the plane. This was the plane that Vernon was on. The man sat next to him. He had been that man who had boarded the truck back at Jonestown at the very last minute. We can only imagine how the Temple members and their families felt there on the airstrip. They were so close to freedom. They knew the situation was tense, particularly after the congressman had been attacked, so they must have been very eager to finally take off. While most people had boarded the two planes, some were still standing on the airstrip, including Congressman Ryan, the reporters and the camera crew. Some of them then noticed the arrival of a truck, which looked like one of the vehicles on the compound. Men could be seen in the back of the stationary truck just watching the scene on the airstrip as the planes were about to take off. As the smaller plane began to taxi for takeoff, The truck drove in front of the plane to prevent it taking off. Then suddenly, the men jumped out of the truck, carrying rifles, and began shooting at the planes and anyone still left standing who hadn't boarded. Within seconds, bodies were laying on the ground. Here now is how one man on that plane described what happened.
4: I just see commotion out the window. Most of us are on the plane, some of us aren't and they start shooting at everybody. The lady sitting in front of me, they shot her in the back of the head. Her brains fell at my feet. That's when I knew, close the door or die. There was no choices to it. So I jumped up, I grabbed the cables, and I got the door about halfway, and I couldn't get no further, and my sister got behind me, grabbed me, and pulled on me in between the two of us. And that's when we both got shot. We got the door closed. And then that's when they stop shooting at the plane. They go around and start shooting everybody outside. And a lot of them, they did it like a point blank shot just to make sure they killed them. After a few minutes, we lower the the door back down. We go back outside. And somebody screams, they're coming back, they're coming back. And so me, my sister and three others, we ran directly into the jungle as fast as we could.
2: But that wasn't all. Simultaneously, As the attack was taking place, gunshots also rang out inside the other smaller plane. The man who had joined the defectors at the last minute had pulled out a gun and began shooting. As Vernon had been sitting next to him, he was shot three times in the abdomen. He then wrestled the man to get the gun. During the scuffle, Monica had also been shot. It would come out later that when the man joined the group leaving in the truck, some were suspicious of him, as he had been very close to Jones, and therefore they didn't believe that he was defecting, and they even thought he may have had a gun, but no one challenged him. During the ride, he was heard to say, I'm really happy to be getting out, which we can see now was just an affront. And how had the congressman not been able to find the gun when he checked him over? The showering of bullets had caused some people to find safety wherever they could. Some jumped underneath the planes, while others ran out of the planes and into the jungle next to the airstrip. One of the defectors was a man named Gerald Parks, and he was in the larger plane with his wife Patricia and two young daughters. He witnessed his wife get shot and immediately ushered his daughters out of the plane, instructing them to run into the jungle and hide. Others also ran into the jungle, including Vernon and a man named Tim Reiterman, who was a newspaper reporter. He had also been shot twice. While hiding in the jungle, Tim heard the shooting stop, but a short time later more shots rang out. It would be revealed later that those further shots were the gunmen shooting those who were already laying on the ground, most likely already dead. They were shot multiple times to make sure that they were dead. Throughout the Congressman's trip to Jonestown, as we already saw, much video footage had been taken. The attack at the airstrip had been so sudden that footage hadn't been taken, which is just as well. However, one of the cameramen had managed to record a few seconds of the attack. The small piece of video seems to show that the cameraman is taking the footage from on the ground, as though he was laying down. The shot is slightly on an angle and it shows the truck and then the men jump off and start shooting. But the footage abruptly cuts off after only a few seconds. So it appears that the cameraman had been shot but then fell but still managed to record for a few seconds. But sadly, he was one of the five people who died as a result of the attack. Of the four other people shot, as we saw, one was Patricia Parks, who had been killed inside the plane. Another cameraman, Bob Brown, was also shot dead along with the reporter Don Harris from NBC, the man who had received the note from Vernon. And it was revealed later that after he saw the truck arrive with the men in the back, he reportedly said, I think we're in for some trouble. And finally, the last victim was Congressman Ryan himself. Eleven others had been injured but lived to recount their ordeals. The man who shot inside the plane was eventually apprehended and was to go on trial, which will be discussed later. Meanwhile, back in the jungle, Tim hadn't heard any further shooting and peered out from the bushes to see that the truck and the gunman were gone. So he cautiously walked out of the jungle and approached the scene of absolute carnage. The five victims were laying there on the ground, clearly shot multiple times. As difficult as it must have been, he took close-up photographs of each person. He also noticed the smaller plane was not there, so it clearly had been able to take off. The larger plane wasn't able to take off as its tyres had been shot out. He discovered other people who were injured hiding inside the plane and miraculously others somehow avoided being shot. It's really quite miraculous that no one inside the smaller plane was killed. There were only five people in that plane. And it's also interesting to note that the gunmen had not fired at the smaller plane, probably because they knew the man inside that plane would kill everyone. So from this we can see just how calculated the attack had been. After it was clear that the danger was over the group were assisted by members of the Guyanese army who just happened to be at the airport who had witnessed the attack. They had been camped out in a tent to guard a Guyanese air force plane. So they helped the survivors back to their tent and rendered them first aid. A call was then made to the Guyanese army to report the attack and a military aircraft was dispatched to transport everyone back to Georgetown, where they then boarded a United States Medivac aircraft, which took them to the Andrews Air Force Base in Maryland. But it's interesting to note that they didn't get assistance until the next day, so the injured just stayed on the airstrip overnight. And even more alarming, while they were being given first aid, the man who had shot inside the smaller plane suddenly emerged from the jungle and approached the group. Some of the group accused him of being involved in the shooting. So, as you can imagine, they were fearful of him, even though none of them had been inside the small plane and didn't know that he had shot those inside. The other defectors had been suspicious of him right from the start, as he had been so close to Jones. So they felt he had been involved in the ambush and they ultimately told him to leave. And now here is an account from Congressman Ryan's legal advisor, Jackie Spear, who was there on that day at the airstrip. Well, first of all, I was actually placing
5: people on the two planes. Uh, The tractor-trailer had arrived and started shooting, but my back was to it. So I didn't see it. I didn't even know what the sounds were. And then everyone started to scurry. And then Ryan started to run. And so then I ran um, under the plane. And as I was running, um, he was hit um, once. And then he was hit again and fell. And I just ran to one of the wheels and tried to hide there, pretending I was dead. and it seemed like it went on forever. It must have been, you know, a couple of minutes. But they, um, they had identified who they wanted to kill. And they came and shot um, the congressman. They shot uh, Don Harris, the NBC reporter, the cameraman, uh, the sound man, uh, Greg Robinson, the examiner, photographer, uh, and me. Now, um, every time I go back to that moment, I, I, I thank God that I'm still alive because there's no reason why I am alive. My whole right side of my body was blown up. My left, my right thigh was was totally destroyed, but the femoral artery was still intact. If if that had been severed, I would have bled to death in 90 seconds. Um, so, you know, there's so many uh, thoughts that run through your head when 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 you're dying. And I was 28 years old, and um, you know, I had resigned myself to the fact that I was dying. And um, because I'm a good Catholic girl, I said the act of contrition and and waited for the lights to go out. Uh, always thinking my parents would never know what happened to me. Uh, I, I, I had a flash that, oh my gosh, I'm never going to get married, I'm never going to have kids, I'm never going to live to be 85. Uh, you know, all those kind of crazy thoughts that run through your mind when, um, when you know there's probably no tomorrow. Did you remember being hit? Do you remember the physicalness of being hit? Oh, absolutely. Um, It it was like a um, semi had just rolled over my body. The impact, the first thing that I felt was the impact. Um, And then I looked onto my right side and there was, my right arm was was blown up and there was a a bone sticking up. And then my right leg was, um, you know, pretty badly um, hit. And I was hitting my back. Um, So, you go into shock. And what happened in my mind was I just sort of started saying to myself, well, the the left side of your body still works. And you start basically kind of trying to cope with what still is functional. And then you were basically left for dead. We were on that airstrip for 22 hours without medical attention. Yeah, it's, it's, it's hard to fathom today, really, when you think about um, how quickly we can get life-saving resources to most people. Who were the first people to come to rescue you? So we were, we were on that airstrip for um, close to 22 hours. A- at one point, I was on the side of the airstrip and then they moved me to a tent. And in the tent was, were the most severely injured who were still alive. And we waited in that tent all night. And all I had was uh, the, the goodness of you know, some of the reporters and uh, the producer from NBC who came and brought me rum, Guyanese rum. And I took swigs of Guyanese rum
2: to get through that night. So Jackie spent years recovering from her ordeal but after all that she went through it was so wonderful to hear that she ran for her murdered congressman's seat but lost unfortunately. She then turned to county and state politics and served for two decades on the California Legislature. In 2008 the Leo Ryan seat opened up again and this time she won and she went on to have a long career, only recently retiring from politics. So here she is giving her speech after being elected.
5: I also follow in the footsteps of Leo Ryan, who served this chamber chamber with distinction until he was assassinated 30 years ago. And I'm honoured to introduce his daughter, Erin Ryan, who is in the members' gallery. I was privileged to serve on Congressman Ryan's staff, Because I learned from one of the best. He taught me three important lessons. One, question the status quo. Two, always listen to the people you represent. And three, always stand up for what you believe in, even if you have to stand alone.
2: Meanwhile, back in Jonestown, the final chapter of this tragedy was about to play out. The shooters returned and informed Jones that they had completed their mission. But this is not what he told the congregation. He said he didn't know who killed the congressman, but now Jonestown would be blamed and that they were all in danger. One of Jones' staff members then got on the radio to Sharon in Georgetown and sent a coded message which said, Enact the last stand, murder the temple's enemies and then kill yourselves. And the final word in the message was spelled out in capital letters, K-N-I-F-E, spelling knife. And the reason for using this word will shortly become clear. The following is an audio dramatisation of the call made to Sharon, with Jones's son Stephen describing what was happening.
1: Please, take care of everyone there.
3: Everyone, Jim.
4: Everybody. Georgetown. Everybody. Relatives, too. Just take revenge. I'll
5: have to tell the others.
0: Things were going bad. We've been ordered to get revenge. Revenge meant. Go out and kill people. Concerned relatives first, maybe members of the Congressman's party, but those who had turned against us would have been considered the worst enemies. It just took one spark. this time. His time. One thread of insanity to unravel the whole works.
3: White night. night. White night. night. Everybody report to the pavilion immediately.
1: White night. White night. Everybody report to the pavilion immediately. White night.
2: After speaking to Jones, Sharon returned to the dining room where Lee Anne and Sherwin were enjoying their meal together. She told Leanne that there was a phone call for her and she left the room but there was no phone call. Sharon spoke with her for a short time and she then returned to the dining room. It was then that she informed her father that it was time for him to leave but she told him they would meet again the next day. Sharon then led Leanne and her two younger children to a room upstairs. She produced a knife and stabbed the three of them to death, and then killed herself. In the next episode, we will see how the final moments of some 900 people's lives was to play out. Bye for now, and remember to be a good apple.